0: Part of my role in Snow like now is I have now inserted myself in front of every proposal and every contract and said, okay. it cannot go out until I look at it. And it's not because I have some great deep legalese prowess. It's I want to be able to look at what we're saying and be able to look at what we've done in the past that compares and see where we got hung up. And even if it does not change the proposal numbers or the schedule, at least we can have the start to have the conversation and say, okay, we can put this forward, but let's remember XYZ happened last time and we need to just keep an eye on it the second time around. And then if it happens a second time, then we definitely know that we need to really be restructuring how we are planning this project typology.
1: Welcome to a best practice a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Trevor Bullen and Sarah Hughes of Snow Crillage Architects. Trevor is a senior associate at Snow Crillage, uh, served as director of ops at Snow for the past four years, and has since handed off the role to Sarah, which we'll be talking a little bit about that as well today. Trevor is a broadly experienced architect with over 20 years of professional experience before joining Snow Crouch, he led an award-winning architecture and planning studio on the island of Granada, Granada, <laughs> sorry about that, where he completed over 30 built projects. Trevor has also remained active in academia. He has taught architectural design at the Boston Architectural College and at the City College of New York, as well as a guest critic at Harvard University, Parsons School of Design, and Pratt Institute, among others. Sarah Hughes is Director of Finance and Ops at Snow Krulich. She was educated, trained, and practiced as an architectural designer for a decade before transitioning to small business operations. Prior to Snow Krulich, Sarah was a bookkeeping and accounting consultant catering primarily to architects, landscape architects, interior designers, and a host of other creative-based companies in the Twin Cities area. She has over 20 years of experience in understanding small businesses, the ins and outs, and workings, and has advised and developed upon a specialized nature of design firms. So special thanks also to Natalia Egon of Snow Acrylic Architects for helping us connect with Trevor and Sarah. Today, I'm joined by a co-host, my co-host, Chris Morgan. So really excited to jump into this conversation. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having us. To start, kind of ran over a little bit of a bio, but would love to just hear maybe some of the highlights about your own career, things that you found were kind of pivotal turning points that got you to where you are today. Maybe we could start off with Sarah.
0: Yeah. So as my bio said, I was trained and educated and practiced in architecture for about 10 years. I graduated from the University of Minnesota in Twin Cities at the architecture school there. And I worked at a couple of firms over the course of a decade that were very small, small being about a dozen people or less. And so you learned very quickly that you had to be very versatile in many roles And there wasn't always the support available in firms that size to be able to utilize standardized templates and processes and procedures. You had to make them up as you went. And each project was another opportunity to try to compound upon what you did the last time and make it better. And I wound up being the person at those firms I worked with that just tended to gravitate more towards the organization and the compilation of data, whether it be in a room finish schedule, whether it be in a project budget, whether it be in a Christmas card list, like it all seemed to have the same skill set needed that, to be honest, nobody liked doing but me. And it was where I was the happiest. I used to say if I could design details and hand them over to someone else and be like Oz behind the curtain and never have to do a lot of client interfacing, I would have been, I would have stayed in architecture forever, but that's really not the way it works. And it wasn't really where I found my greatest joy in it. So when I switched out of architecture and into bookkeeping, it wasn't a huge leap that I think a lot of people assume it would be. It felt very natural and normal to me because it was really just taking all of the parts and pieces I've been gathering up over a decade prior and turning it into something that could be used as a support tool for other small businesses. Why I left architecture and went to bookkeeping, it was honestly the economy. It was at the tail end of the housing bubble and there was no work to be done. And keepers were still needed. And I thought, what if I try this? And it turns out it was needed and wanted. And I speak architect. I understand the language and the color coding spreadsheets that they would turn over to me and say, fix this. And translate it into profit and loss sheets and balance sheets. And been doing it ever since.
1: Trevor?
2: I think my journey is maybe a little bit more of a standard journey. I graduated undergrad in New York. And when I finished school at the GSD, I went back to New York. And so my sort of early experience is very much a, um, I'm sure a lot of uh, you and a lot of your listeners can relate to sort of that sort of New York City boiler room mentality. Young, out of school, working 80 hours a week at times. And I'm from a small island in the Caribbean, Grenada. And at some point you sort of say to yourself, I could keep doing this and keep hoping to advance. When you're in New York, you feel like you're a small fish in a big pond. And I just thought I could try to do this in Grenada in this much, much smaller context. And I wouldn't be sort of battling with all this, this incredible talent pool to try to get ahead. You know, I think that was sort of what was really on my mind at that time. So I had a cousin, my cousin Brian, who continues to run the practice that we founded together at Coco. And so I reached out to Brian at the time. He had just finished a SciArc and he was doing the occasional house remodel or a little something here and there. But he was working out a home. And I reached out to him and said, I'm thinking about returning. And then he was like, well, maybe we should do something together. And it just sort of evolved. So yeah, in 2000, I just packed it all up, cashed in my savings, you know, bought a printer, bought a couple of computers. We rented a space without any clients, which is, sounds completely insane. I and mean, we probably only had about three months in us if we didn't get something to the door. And But we were fortunate enough by month two. We had a few things and it started to grow. And then, so later on, my wife is from the Twin Cities and we recognized that her parents were aging and that they needed some support. And so we made the decision to move to the Twin Cities. And luckily for me, I landed at Sturmkrolik so I could, in a place that I felt leveraged my skill set well. And that's kind of how I got
3: to be where I'm at. Trevor, when you entered Prolick, what was it like in there? What was it like in the practice and how did you get started? Sure, so I did not start in the operations role right away. So I'd come in,
2: I was probably about employee number, I would say about 21-ish, uh, maybe 20. And um, it was during a period of growth. So I think that about a, a year prior, we just moved into a new space that had a lot. Um, it was weird because I actually sat at the, uh, the lunch table. right? We were running out of space. So that was a lunch table. Suddenly became this spot for some more workstations. And I remember just thinking, you know, here I am at this big, area sort of all by myself. And I think, but it was a really, really interesting culture. I mean, I think that I know that we'll touch on this a little bit. I remembered my interview, Matt Krylick talking to me about this value for having reasonable work-life balance. And the conversation in my head was, I see the kind of work you do. You're just telling me this, right? Because I know what it takes to do this kind of work. Again, leveraging my experience in New York. So I just thought, well, he's just telling me that to get me through the door. But that was one of the things that has been really rewarding is this is a culture where I think people are really valued and their time is
3: really valued and their
2: time outside of the studio is really
3: valued. What was the shift into the director of operations role? You said that you didn't start that way. Sure. So when I
2: came in, one of the things, although I was not in the operations role per se, one of the early call it assignments that I was given was that the person who was doing operations had asked if I might be able to help with staffing. And staffing, I think, takes up probably a disproportionate amount of time in in the operations role. And so I was sort of starting to get my feet wet. And towards the, uh, it was around Christmas, it was about four or five months in, my predecessor let the partners know that she was planning on expanding her family and she was resigning. And so that turned into me having lunch with Matt and Julie and them asking me if I would mind uh, sort of taking over that role. And so that's kind of how I got into that.
3: The thinking must have been that here's Trevor, who's run a practice for 14 years in a different country. What were the, those skills that you assembled when you have full coverage of scope of running a business that made it possible for you to step into that role having not planned to Sure. So, I mean, I think one hand, if you
2: run a practice, then there's certain things that you develop. And I think perhaps one of my strengths is maybe in sort of interpersonal skills and just kind of working with people and sort of trying to understand what their needs are. right? And so I always describe my role as being the grease in the wheel, really just trying to accommodate and try to figure out what people need. And I think for me personally, that's really been one of the more rewarding things as I've become uh, a sort of more senior architect is that I do relish the opportunities to help other people excel, and I really enjoy it I mean I genuinely do, and so that's the thing I think that I took away. I mean I think I did a lot of everything again because I had my own small practice and some level, I feel like I did a lot of everything and so I had, had experience with it and I was comfortable with it and I, I sort of I'm comfortable with the discomfort that goes with that, but I'm not great the way Sarah is with like organizing the numbers and creating the systems. And that's where I really feel like that's something that Sarah's really brought into the role that has really helped us.
0: I well, want to add to those setting up those systems are very time consuming. So when you're balancing being a project manager and a project architect and operations director all at once, there's not an opportunity to yeah set up those tools that might be a your own job.
2: Yeah, I think I should clarify that, right? Which is that I was always still running projects. Wasn't a yeah, sort of standalone okay. role the way yeah. it,
1: in which it is now. Yeah. And Sarah, what was the story around how you entered the firm
0: initially? So, after I transitioned out of architecture and into bookkeeping over the course of about eight years, I wound up setting up my own bookkeeping and consulting company where I would go from small firm to small firm. Uh, Snow Krylik was the largest firm that I had as a client. There was on average about 15 different clients I was working with, some weekly, some quarterly, some annually. And after having been with them for about three years and being in the office three days a week for a handful of hours each week, and also having done this job that I had been doing for about eight years, I could start to see patterns in all of the firms I was at where there were places that we could be doing things differently, or we could be trying to make this more efficient, or we could be implementing this new tool. But there was never any time. And when I would bring these things up to firms, not to no Snow Cry like, but across the board, that was always the main response is, there's just no time. Or, or could you do it? And it's like, well, I can do it, but I only have four hours a week with you or six hours a quarter. With you. And so I started to feel that itch of I could do this for the rest of my life, and I would be perfectly happy going from firm to firm. A lot of these people I went to school with, or I used to work with, or their spouses of people I used to work with. I mean, it's a small community in Minneapolis because we a lot of us all came out of the same school. But I realized I wanted to start working on projects, and the problem with the role I had as a bookkeeping consultant was, at the end of every month, the calendar would flip over and I would have to start all over again with invoicing, with timesheet entry, with bill entry, with payrolls. And so I never got as far as I wanted to. And I started doing the math and looking around at different firms in the area and thinking, who is the size, including some product that could use this role, that it could make sense for them financially to hire somebody? Because I know what it costs. And I had to I mean, in full honesty, I had to make sure the cost of my salary made sense to a firm because having one full-time person at a managerial level, the salary and the benefits that come with it for a small firm is not a small undertaking. And there has to be the ability to back that up with billable sales and profiting. So I constructed my own offer and I did the math for (laughs) Matt and Julie. And I said, here's what I think. And they were definitely not disinterested, and the timing wasn't quite right. And I realized it was something I really wanted, and I still wanted to do. And so I kept looking. And then, to be honest, I went back to Matt and Julie and said, "I still want to do this. I just understand the timing's not right for this firm." And so I think I'm going to try to do this somewhere else. And they said, "No, wait, you can't go. You <laughs> <That's a good laughs> can't I was really glad just because I had started some small projects with Snow Crylic like, and I wanted to keep going. But again, it has to make sense in terms of staffing, in terms of space, in terms of finances, in terms of the projects you have on the board and the projects that you know are coming in. And it all happened to align at one point and that was great. And it came on at July of last year full-time.
2: Another thing that, that I remember sort of in the time before you came on full-time, Sarah, is that we were always sort of incrementally being like, Hey, can, you know, we can, just get another, can we just get another four hours a week of your time? Yeah,
0: you, know, we were, <laughs> you know, we, we,
2: we just didn't. We, and again, it was this, when you come from a smaller firm, the thought of taking on full-time person is, it can seem quite daunting, uh, particularly somebody who's not billable, right? And so I think we were always just like, yeah, maybe just a little bit more and just a little bit more. And I think that there was really this, this pressure to try to figure out how to get that to balance and make that work.
0: It did get to the point where I was like, you know, this has to be a full-time gig or you need somebody full-time, but I'm running out of daylight. So, yeah. so that was a clear that was a clear change changeover origin.
3: Before Sarah came on full-time, Trevor, what were some programs or processes that you had started to set up or what was your coverage? Even though it was sort of part-time, like it was a hybrid architect role and then director of operations, what were some of the systems that you started to set up?
2: So we had, again, I think one of the things that happens when a small firm grows is that a lot of things are decentralized where, so I took on some aspects of HR, staffing, Sarah was busy on the sort of the financial side. And then we have a studio manager who's sort of managing just sort of some of, a lot of that day-to-day. And so my role was sort of navigating between those, right? And I think there were tons of systems. I mean, at that, I inherited some systems, right, in terms of, I think we were constantly sort of struggling with how best to balance staff, right? And I think what became clear was that with Sarah being part-time, there was still a little bit of a disconnect between the financials on a project and the project sort of day-to-day, right? And assigning staff and deciding when something goes on pause, who goes where, and the sort of those financial implications. So there was a bit of a disconnect there. And I think that was something that we were continually struggling with and hence always trying to maybe get a little bit more of Sarah's time. And I think that's one of the biggest contributions to having Sarah in the studio, albeit virtually full-time, is having a greater coverage and a greater connection between our financials and the day-to-days of the project.
3: And we've talked before, Trevor, you and I about this framing of the midsize conundrum. What was your exposure to that in that role or- how did you formulate that idea of the conundrum of the midsize? Sure.
2: So, you know, when we talked about it before, right, it's just that there's this idea that one of the great things about once I think a firm sort of goes over, say, 20 people, is that the firm is in a position to begin to take on bigger projects. Certainly, when I joined the firm, there were, I think there were two large Metro Transit projects that we were working on at the time. And they're great, right? They, they have, let's say, five-person, four five-person teams. They're steady. They can kind of anchor the firm financially, and we can go. But those projects are really, really tough when they either go on hold or when they stop, right? When they transition from, say, CDs, and suddenly it's in CA, where you go from a a four or five person team down to one person. And it's very, very hard to sort of shift on a dime, right? So I think that we get some of the benefits of a bigger firm, being able to take on some bigger work, and that's really great and really exciting. But the impact is so much greater when those projects go on hold. And one or two big projects go on hold for small office. And it's really, really, really challenging. And I think we've done a fairly good job of navigating that by having that, that mix of public and private, depending on the year. it's Sometimes it's sort of split right down the middle. But that is the real challenge. And then, of course, we have some of the same issues that small firms have, which is that you have lots and lots and lots of tiny projects that can also very quickly run out of fee because they're small and, you know, one little hiccup and all of a sudden uh, things get out of whack. Um, and so all of the, I feel like you get the problems of the small firm and the problems of the bigger firm when you're right there in the middle.
1: Thinking about this kind of idea of when you have projects and how there's a the notion of pipeline too, in, in some respects, I'm curious how, how the role of operations overlaps or interfaces with other teams. I'm like, is there a business development team and is there a relationship there about understanding the products that are on deck or potential projects that could be coming in the pipeline? And what what's the current way in which you are either forecasting or solving that, adding that data set as part of your decision making?
0: Well, yeah, we have a product business development team and one individual, the director of business development, she is just a one-stop shop for Always feeding us the information about what proposals are on deck, what proposals are in progress, what have been submitted in the timeline, and when we're about to hear, and also giving a reasonable percentage of expectancy of what we think we're going to get out of it. I will say Matt Krylik also has a great thought for this, too. He can give a pretty good, he can get pretty darn close. I feel like he would have. A career in Vegas based on his vibe from interviews, from the process of going into the interview, of what we could expect out of it. And as a result, we take those odds, we line them up into cash flow forecasting, which is what I do, and line that up with staffing and make hiring decisions based on that. And we also use that to determine who we put on project teams currently in the event that we might have to, like who we do we know definitely has to stay on this project team. But if this one comes down the line, let's put this one on the short-term project with the opportunity of knowing that they could jump to this potential new project down there. It's a giant game of Tetris is what it is. It's moving parts and pieces. And to Trevor's point, we have a lot of the headaches of both small business and big business wrapping around us. But I also enjoy that, when you are small enough, you have a level of dexterity and being able to be nimble. And yes, we have to, we are constantly having to shift and mold, but at least we are small enough that we can do that. It doesn't bring down an entire set of systems, having to make a change and then build everything back up. It can be frustrating though, in terms of business development, when, as Trevor was saying, we know what we have to do both operationally and financially, what we have to have in the pipeline to keep our current teams going. And if any of our current projects just go on pause for three months, suddenly you have you have three people that suddenly you need to absorb someplace else. And when you are a firm this size, you don't necessarily have a place to absorb them. And how can we utilize their downtime in a way that benefits the, team, the firm? Even if it isn't billable time, can they do something that helps us overall in terms of infrastructure and overhead that could support
1: us until we can find more places to put it. them.
2: Yeah. it's also a real ch- challenge. I think with uh, some of the developer-driven work uh, that we've yes more recently started to take on, those pauses happen more frequently. Yeah, and you said three months, but even like a three-week pause, yes. it's like, well, it doesn't make sense often to just move somebody to something for three weeks because just as they're sort of figuring out what's going on in that project to pull them back. You know what I mean? So it can be really challenging that way.
0: We have started to have just very honest conversations with clients, especially these more developer-based clients where in Minneapolis, especially given the occurrences over the last year, developers wanting to expand and develop properties in the Twin Cities area is facing a distinct set of challenges. And so they are... Maybe putting projects on pause like two weeks at a time and then it keeps growing. And we've had to have conversations saying, We completely understand this and support your endeavors and how you were trying to do fundraising and get equity into your project. But it does mean that when you come back, you might not have the same project team that you started with. And it's because we are also a small business. And to their credit, many of them have completely understood that. They've understood this is the project team I was working with when we started we're putting you in a spot where we want to come back to you in a few weeks or a few months and we might not have the same personnel working on our team when we come back, but we will do our best. And you know, it's not necessarily what everyone wants, but it's they are receptive to it and they appreciate the honest feedback.
1: seems like this game of Tetris that you were talking about, Sarah, is also even maybe challenged additionally by the company's own desire to really prioritize quality of life. Can you speak to that a bit? Or Sarah, Trevor, I'm curious to know more about What does quality of life mean as a concept for acrylic?
0: We were just having this conversation today in a different meeting. You know, I can speak for myself when I was coming out of school that your, this is also a very Midwestern take, but your value is based on your productivity. If you have downtime, you aren't doing enough, right? And that was definitely the messaging received in school 20 years ago because I had just posed the question earlier today to some other people, like, is that still what our younger staff members are hearing having just come out of school? Like, what is their understanding of quality of life and balance, right? I can say on the operations side, I see everybody's time every week. I am the person that yells at them to get their time in, passive-aggressively yell. I don't really yell. And monitor who's putting in the hours that they are. And I, well, if our staff knows this happens, but I will tell them now, when i see situations where there are clearly far too many hours being put in above and beyond the standard 40 hour work week i will flag it and communicate it directly to matt and julie and they will have one on one conversations with those individuals because it does matter we do not want people frying out we do not want the idea that we expect you to bill be billable 40 hours a week and then do all the other overhead non-billable work on top of it. And that was a very real expectation in the area of firms. Well, it is in some even now, but in the last 20 years. So we do have some internal conversations about it. It's constantly being monitored. I don't know if Trevor wants to speak to how it plays out in actual project by project.
2: No, well, I mean, I think there, there are a couple of things that, that that go with that, right? One is not only do you bring it to manager, but we bring it up as project managers, right? Because I think there are a couple of things happening if people are putting in way more time right is that the first one is is that we did not adequately mm-hmm. anticipate or plan the work right so that's a failure and obviously it's not going to be sustainable over the course so financially and that's also a failure And mm-hmm. so if we can't track those things, if we're not tracking those things then we're not improving on our project delivery right so I think that's the context that we really think's important. Obviously, quality of life is important, I think, or else we wouldn't be doing that. But I think that's, we're also coming at it as an organization trying to think about how do we do this better? How do we work smarter, not necessarily harder? So I hope that that people understand that and they take away that we are really trying very hard to allow for that work life balance that everybody's seeking.
0: And there are always situations where There is going to be more time put into a week than is a standard 40 hours. That's not what we are discouraging. We just do not want it to be the norm. And as Trevor said, we schedule our project proposals and our fee structure based on a certain percentage of billability within a standard Mm -hmm. nine to five work week.
1: I think
2: that's important too, right? Is that we're not trying to build a culture of folks who watch the clock for five Mm o'clock to be off but rather build in that understanding that we understand that there are deadlines and then you have to surge and we do that all the time. But also once that deadline passes, then you maybe recoup some, right? We're trying our best to plan our work so that we can be as consistent as possible, both in the quality of the way in which we deliver it, but also that we just not burning people out.
1: Is there also mm-hmm. another feedback loop that happens? So it seems like that happens a certain cycle, right? Within the team, mm-hmm probably like on a bi-weekly basis. And then there's probably another cycle of feedback for like new projects, right? Where you're trying to learn too about, okay, we worked on this project of this size and this is how it sort of panned out in that schedule. Is there also a kind of reevaluation then of like how that applies to the next project that comes up? So it's a kind of more upstream to the potential challenges that arise at a bottom, kind of downstream of that. Curious if...
0: Ideally, yes. Yeah. I think it's, it's part of my role that in Snow Crylic now is I have now inserted myself in front of every proposal and every contract and said okay. it cannot go out until I look at it. And it's not because I have some great deep legalese prowess. it's I want to be able to look at what we're saying and be able to look at what we've done in the past that compares and see where we got hung up. And if even if it does not change the proposal numbers or the schedule, at least we can have the start to have the conversation and say, okay, we can put this forward, but let's remember XYZ happened last time and we need to oh, just keep an eye on it the, the second time around. And then if it happens a second time, then we definitely know that we need to really be restructuring how we are planning these, this project typology.
3: Sarah, I'm curious how you formulated this sort of hybrid role between finance and operations. What makes them distinct, but still makes sense in the same role?
0: Yeah. It came basically from me doing the bulk of the day-to-day bookkeeping. And at the time, Matt Kralik doing a lot of the overarching uh, financial review, like on a weekly and monthly and quarterly basis. And then Trevor doing operations where so much of it was all interconnected in terms of invoicing and staffing and budgeting and me just raising my hand and saying, I can take this from him over here and I can take this from him over here. It's not outside my wheelhouse because I'm seeing the end result on my end in terms of the bookkeeping. But here's patterns I'm seeing. I think my elevator pitch was simply I have all the data that no one's actually looking at. And so if you can just give me these buckets that you're holding, I think I can turn it around and like, A, take it off your shoulders. Because again, they are both project managing, project architecting, running a firm, running teams. Let me take it and run with it and see if we can kind of consolidate all these efforts. I think something that Trevor touched on earlier was... We had parsed out all these different roles throughout the firm, and there were always little disconnects, and never due to oversight, but simply because everyone was doing five other roles. So I think my role truly just came out of a consolidation of efforts in trying to take it off. I think
2: the other thing, Sarah, is that what you describe is that by having Sarah involved, we're able to be more consistent in that, right? Because Mm -hmm. we all know, yes, we talk about this trying to have this even deliverable, but We understand when when you're running projects, you have those periods of up and down, right? And so Mm -hmm. the minute we got busy from a a project standpoint, those sort of operational things would more often than not be sort of pushed to the side because we had this sort of paying sort of billable work Mm -hmm. that needed to happen on a deadline, right? And so sort of our overall sort of tracking and all of those things weren't happening as consistently across the board over the entire arc of a project or over the entire uh, calendar year as they should have. And I think that's one of the great things of having Sarah in that role, right, is to be able to keep that sort of consistent attention to those aspects of
1: operations. There's something that we've seen like in the world of tech, which really inspires us in some way that has to do with, with what you're describing, Sarah, like this kind of cross-functional role of operations and how it's able to just really see and use leverage data to inform it across, let's say, all the different functions, right? project management. And and in the world of tech, you see that kind of play out by embedding operational roles within those different functions. So like in sales, you might have a sales ops team that's just focused on figuring out how to get and wire up data to help improve the operations of the sales team in itself. But they kind of roll up at some point to a broader operational leadership, right? They can get more visibility and to understand what are the key levers we need to pull that are going to drive results for the organization in its entirety. And it seems like the way that you're described, especially when you say like you're the only person that has the data that no one else is looking at. And, and Trevor's point about consistency, do you think that this is like a viable as approach to thinking about firms as a scale? Like we haven't seen this play out right, from the companies we've talked to of different sizes. You don't really see that yet. But our our sort of bet is that we think that that's going to become more and more as people start to realize that there's all this data out there now available in different ways. And having people that can look at that data and make sense of it and also understand how, how that maps over the business is going to become more and more of a thing within the industry. From where you sit, like maybe it's too far to project, but I mean, it seems like that's been... Very beneficial to you to be able to see that kind of visibility. I'm, I'm curious what you think.
0: For sure answer, yes. <laughs> I can speak to the 10 years of going from firm to firm, small firms, and seeing what makes them work and what does not. And also having been on the opposite side where I was in those firms and small businesses as a whole, they do not receive the same level of support on any level than large businesses do. I mean, that's a pretty obvious statement, right? But so much of the support in terms of operations is overlooked because, as Trevor was saying, you have to play so many roles, it simply falls to the wayside. Where owners are doing it at three o'clock in the morning when they've gotten done with all the other things they need to do. And I don't see how any firm could not benefit from having a designated operations role. It's really just the viability of it. And what makes sense in terms of, given the size of the firm, how it can be something that is consistently valued, even if they are from five people to 50 people. That's a challenging sale to make to a small business that is waiting paycheck to paycheck based on whether or not their clients are paying them. But it's never something that you can overinvest in, in spite of clearly unbiased.
2: I think there's also, you know, in terms of trying to get the right information in front of the people who need it uh, or sort of in a way that's actionable or usable, we talk a little bit about trying to understand, certainly at the project manager level, trying to understand what people are doing, you know, in terms of their time and how is that impacting the overall budget, either by phase or the budget as a whole. I think those are some of the things in terms of data that's actionable in ways that, as a project manager you might want to know like if we maintain this pace or the project schedule slides by three weeks well what does that mean to the bottom line down the road do i have the buffer do i not do i now need to take three weeks out of cds out of the next phase or can i get by you know what i mean those kinds of sort of variables i think are the things the kinds of data that are useful at the project level that's, I think, oftentimes missing, or at least they're cumbersome to get to. And because they're cumbersome to get to, they don't consistently get worked on.
0: And I would add to, especially when you are at a small to mid-sized firm, finding the right tools to allow you to collect that data efficiently and effectively and be able to share and manipulate the data, which is really hard in an effective manner that can make or break your operations. It's There's a lot of resources out there. And the reality is from everything that I've seen, it's architects just strictly staying inside Excel spreadsheets and needing the familiarity of it. That is what's keeping them in there. And it's not super expensive. And larger firms can absorb the costs of larger tools that allow them to analyze and input their data that small firms can't really justify. And so what a one resource that I have seen over the years is firms talking to one another and collaborating with each other and sharing with each other on just a peer-to-peer basis. What works for you? What doesn't work for you? Have you tried this tool over here? Have you tried this contract typology for this type of project? Those are the things that are really supporting small to mid-sized firm operations because it's free, it's firsthand reviewers, and you, you're you not dedicated to try to use it and roll it out across company-wide.
1: Uh, that's great. I think we can transition off to some of the questions that I've collected here, and then we'll circle back of them. Um, so Margin asks, I'm going to synthesize this a little bit or maybe just kind of read it out, right here we go. So uh, regarding Sarah's role, and scaling. it's likely that at some point the CFO role will shift to be to someone with more of a financial orientation. In a larger role, Sarah's role might become a managing director, which is found in signature practices. This seems more like a comment than a question to. <laughs> <So>, data <laughs> is critical, but business intelligence is more critical. And this is an interesting point of changing the phrase right of going from just about data to synthesizing it into business intelligence. And basically, she's making the comment that you're operating at a very enterprise level, right, in your current role mm-hmm. by being able to like look at not just like see it as data on its own, but actually making the business decisions based off of that in a really critical way.
3: Was um, there a precedent, Sarah? Was there a precedent that you looked at? I mean, architects are very familiar with looking at precedents. What do precedents look like in your discipline?
0: Honestly, the precedents that I was looking at was combination of what I had seen firm after firm over the last decade where I was just jumping around. And because I've worked with firms that had bookkeeper on contract, they had CFO on contract, they had marketing director and business development on contract. And it was understanding how all these roles and how we as like this contract team for these individual firms had to work together to support and be cogs in their system and pull out and then go over to this next business and then pull out and then go to the, over to this next business. And where we were finding, as a contractor team, efficiencies among ourselves and how we were hoping to be able to implement and apply those to these smaller firms. That's what I took with me when I you know, proposed this role. So yes, I'm still balancing the books every month, but also then looking at this data, at, as you were saying, at an enterprise level.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing is pre-pandemic, I would occasionally meet with another director of operations at a larger firm. And we would sit and have coffee and it was just great part venting session, part just like, hey, how, you know, and you realize that you have many of the same issues, but to Sarah's earlier point, the larger firms just have so many more resources. So things are slower in this office. They loan somebody out to their office in Texas. And so their ability to manage those cycles and to have people dedicated to sort of supporting them on the financial side and, and other things, they're able to do just so much more. And I think that's really that midsize firm pinch, right, where you have the same problems or many of the same problems, but not the same resources to help you navigate
3: it. Trevor, have you started to see in your own work and in the work of the practice in general now with Sarah in place? Uh, running these at a new level, just the work of the architecture projects, especially you being able to dedicate yourself yourself full-time to them. What have been the changes? So we were talking a little bit earlier where I've been able to
2: see my personal sort of billable time increase, which has been just kind of interesting for me to see and realize how much of my time previously was getting taken up and doing uh, many of the things that Sarah now does, right? so that is one sort of just immediately tangible thing i mean i think one of the challenges at least for me in terms of understanding the sort of the global impact is that sir came on in the middle of the pandemic right so our systems aren't just in terms of having your pulse on what's happening across the studio is different and i think the other challenge to that of course is that when we were physically in the studio i felt like i had a much i understood what was happening and then I, by necessity in my role as in operations, kind of had to have my finger on the pulse. But now that I've taken a step back, I actually, you know, it's funny. The other day we were in a in all-staff meeting. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what this team member is working on. Whereas, And it's a very odd feeling when there was a time when I knew what everybody was working on uh, to now where I don't have that direct day-to-day knowledge anymore. And that's... Um, so it's hard for me to to fully, I think, understand sort of at the global level, but certainly
3: in sort of my immediate world, in my teams, I, I can see the benefit. And Sarah, you had mentioned right before this call that the firm has been working on a new way to think about the office space architecturally, yeah. where you can get more of the sense of what is going on across the firm if you're not only looking at your project. So, can you talk a little bit about what the thinking is?
0: We've been using this time while we were we've been completely remote over the course of the last year to really evaluate our work from home policy, our ideas about flex time, our connectivity, and we are reconfiguring our office spaces to allow greater flexibility in terms of not only how you work at home but how you work in the office and how you collaborate both online and in the office before times had basically like standardized open office with a, a couple available conference rooms and now we really need to rethink how people are working now and what they're going to be comfortable doing coming back into a space with other individuals with the understanding that a lot of us are going to be online now and and in the office at the same time um, on Zoom calls and what that means and how we're getting used to communicating with each other. And it is not a small effort. It's <laughs> and it is definitely the new world order of understanding how people want to work, not just for their own professionally, but for their personal needs too, and trying to accommodate. And that's where this being small is great because we have opportunity to try to meet people where they're at in a far greater way than if we were a company three times the size, but also. We're just big enough that meeting 30 people where they're at is still not a small undertaking. And we are looking at it as a sort of living laboratory effort. And we really want to understand what works, what doesn't and why. Almost using it in terms of a project that we're project managing. What did we learn from this? How can we make it better and keep it evolving?
1: I have a couple more questions um, that we'll try to get to here. Um, one is for Sarah specifically. I think people are very curious about What's it like to leave the world of architecture, so to speak, when you make that decision of going to bookkeeping? Mm -hmm. Like we hear it to ourselves, like I hear it and Chris hears it too, from jumping from architecture to the world of marketing. What was it like Mm -hmm. for you? Like what was the, I mean, it seemed like there was a revelation for you that was like, oh yeah, this is actually what makes me happy. And I should just double down on this.
0: You know, I was one of those cliche kids that just declared my profession at an early age. Like I was going to be a cheerleader. And then I was like, no. How to buckle down. I'm seven years old now, so I'm going to be an architect. That was my entire career thought process. And so it was the only thing I did. It was the only thing I knew. It was the only thing I educated myself, trained myself, interned, all that. And it never occurred to me that there were any niches you could specialize within a profession. I just knew architecture as a capital A. And it wasn't until I understood in going in and out of these different types of firms and seeing how I worked compared to how other people worked at the desks next to me and that my interests were not the same as their interests. And, you know, just getting older and getting more confident in yourself and your decisions is someone made the comparison to me one time when I was just making a decision to make a move And they said, sometimes it feels like you're about to jump off a cliff because you've never experienced anything other than what you're doing your whole life. And it's really, you're just stepping off the curb. It's not that big of a deal. You're going to be okay. Because the things that you really value about and what I value about architecture, I still carry them with me. I had no plan to specifically go into bookkeeping for architecture. I actually, when I switched over to bookkeeping, I did bookkeeping for an IT firm for two years. That's how I learned to do it. And it wasn't until friends and colleagues and former classmates started in the tail end of the um, the last recession, started making their own firms. And they were one and two and five person firms saying, hey, I heard your friends, you're doing bookkeeping. Could you help me? And hey, I heard that you did bookkeeping for them. Then all of a sudden I realized I had this ability to speak their language and understand their projects and know how project phasing needed to be scheduled That I was able to mesh the two. So I never really felt like I left. I just found a niche. And it turns out it worked really well for what I enjoyed out of architecture. I don't know if that answered the question, but yeah, that's no,
1: how I, I got there. That. I, that, I resonate a lot with that kind of jumping off a cliff sentiment. It does feel that way. At least it felt that way for me also. Yeah. We do have a question about platforms for operations management or accounting software. Maybe can you speak to like, because I think some people want more detail. It's like, what's an example of something that could be accessible to a much larger firm that smaller firm couldn't access? Mm-hmm.
0: Am I allowed to say like certain, like specific? Yeah, branch? absolutely. I know there's products like Dell Tech, like great big project management enterprise systems that a firm of 10 people would really benefit from something that size, but it is not inexpensive. And the integration time and the training time and the rollout time for it is another expense on top of it that a lot of small firms just cannot justify the cost. That's the main one that I'm thinking of. Yeah. But it has been a struggle. I will say that QuickBooks Online has really changed in 10 years. It has changed bookkeeping for small businesses. 10 years ago, when I started bookkeeping, you had QuickBooks Desktop. It was a beast of a program. And... It was, you know, like the software you actually had to buy in a box and install it via a CD back in the olden times. And it was really not something that was easily accessible for even small business owners. Because I would always make the joke, it's not like you went to architecture school to learn how to run QuickBooks. Like this is not where your interest lies. And so I would get a lot of company owners that would get frustrated that they didn't know how to use this software system. QuickBooks online has really catered to the fact that small business owners are not accountants and that's okay. So that's an example of one that has has shifted gears and mentalities that hasn't even solved.
1: Thank you for that. So I do have one last question, which i like to ask all guests. And it's, what's the nicest thing anyone's ever done for you? And you can answer this as personal or as business oriented as you'd like. Trevor, I'd like to start with you.
2: Well, first of all, I would say that I feel so fortunate that I have had people who've been advocates for me all the time. The one thing that I often tell people, the story really just sticks out at me, was that my very first, very, very big job, I was working on a deadline. And parallel to that deadline, my wife was having a back surgery. And in my mind, those two things were not related. And somehow the client found out, or the client's rep found out, that my wife was having surgery. And just at the end of a meeting, he just pulled me aside and he said, I heard your wife's having surgery, so if you need to miss the deadline, eh. And I just, in that moment, and this is sort of professionally, but in that moment, because this had been my biggest job to date, it was by far the biggest building we had designed in, in my firm, and I was feeling all that pressure to deliver for this biggest client, which would be the biggest building, and it was like, you know what I mean, just somebody just showing a moment of grace. So I think professionally for me, that moment still stands out.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I think professionally, and it could be personally too. One of the moments early on in my career, I remember I got a summer internship working for the Facilities Planning and Management Engineer on the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus. So I worked there for a summer and I sat next to another architect student. This was when I was in grad school and he was too at a different school. His name was Ben Thompson. And I mean, this was... 1996, 97. This was back when AutoCAD was a blue screen and a series of F keys. And you just had to have secret special knowledge of what combination. And that entire summer with the patience of, like I have yet to experience every 30 seconds, I had a question of how do I make this ortho line? How do I snap to this line? How do I do this? How do I do that? And he stayed with me the entire time. And as he was doing his job, he simultaneously would just answer out of listening to me at all times, asking me an answer, asking me questions to get me to think about if I already could maybe intuitively figure it out myself. And if I couldn't, he would also answer it without any judgment or shame. And I don't know, it was just something that always stuck with me that I realized that by the end of that summer, he single-handedly taught me how to do AutoCAD without any actual formal requests, just being this chirpy little person next to him the whole time. And I don't know, try to keep it in mind whenever I feel like there's people new in a situation, letting them ask questions without feeling that they shouldn't.
1: Yeah. Grace and patience. Just two beautiful concepts uh, that you both described. Really, really great. Thank you for sharing that. We always ask that question because we like to keep it a bit human at the same time. We're really about being human at Monograph too. And so I really appreciate your answers. So I think with that, we'll kind of wrap up. I'll give a little bit of a blurb about Monograph itself. So at Monograph, we're building the future of practice operations and back office management for small to mid-sized firms. Uh, Monograph is designed by architects for architects. About half of our team has had some interaction either at an architecture firm or architecture school or It's pretty embedded here. And so we're all really driven to help the industry solve some of these challenges that we've talked to today and in building software that's very easy to use so that people can get back to designing really great projects. So what is Monograph? It's a really great way to see a unifying vision of your firm in one easy and beautifully designed solution. We offer the ability to manage timesheets and how that time actually impacts budgets, schedules, staffing, all in one um, easy to use tool. I uh, really appreciate Trevor, Sarah, your time and, and walking us through your experiences and, and building on operations team and, at uh, Snowcrawlix. So always thankful for to have Chris as uh, my co-host here and thankful for everyone that joined today's conversation to ask great questions and to listen in. Thank you
3: all. Thank
0: you so much.
3: Thanks for having us. Hey, it's Chris from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-size architecture firms. More than 200 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial today or watch a live demo with our CEO, Robert Ewan. Get started at monograph.com. That's monograph.com. Talk to you soon.